This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, you'll hear from a former federal prosecutor. The department is always trying to avoid the appearance that their conduct is politically motivated. Obviously, there are situations where their hands are tied and they have to do what they have to do, whether it appears politically motivated or not. Also, a father formed a nonprofit to help others after his own daughter struggled with cancer. So based on what I had learned, I wrote this cancer guidebook. We show an objective way to identify the top centers focused on the child's disease. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with a look at the Hidden Brain podcast, a show you can hear on KCBX each Friday from 2 to 3. The focus throughout February is how we form our political beliefs. KCBX's Kim Foster speaks with the host of Hidden Brain, Shankar Vedantam. So just in time for election season, the psychology of how we form political beliefs, what we have in common, and it doesn't seem like we have much in common these days when it, when it comes to politics. That's right, Kim. Uh, it does seem sometimes that we have nothing in common with the people who we oppose uh, politically and the people who oppose us. Uh, but this um, conversation is with a psychologist named Kurt Gray, and, and he has an interesting insight, which is that when we think about political conflict and, and political discourse, we often tend to feel like our opponents are filled with with rage and anger and hatred, that they are misinformed, that they are, they're poorly informed, uh, that they've come to their views wrongly. Uh, one of his important insights is that our opponents, of course, think exactly the same of us. They think that we are you know, angry and misinformed and filled with, with hateful spite. Um, Kurt Gray argues that in many ways, both of these beliefs are false. Uh, and in some ways, we are motivated much more by a feeling of threat, of danger, of fear, than we are by hatred and animosity. And, and he draws an evolutionary argument here to say that, you know, throughout our evolutionary history, humans and our ancestors were keenly aware of anything that could do us harm, and that we've brought those same, you know, mental algorithms, if you will, to our political discourse. Uh, and so when we think about the issues that divide us, many of us feel if we were to lose ground, if the other side were to win, it isn't just a question of a policy decision going in a, in a different direction than the one that we might prefer. We feel like our entire way of life stands to be threatened. Our entire way of what we hold dear and val- valuable is threatened. And in some ways, this feeling of threat, this feeling of being under danger, uh, in some ways animates us and makes us very upset. And I think that's what produces in the public sphere the amount of anger and animosity that we see. Maybe that's why politicians use fear as a tactic sometimes to uh, yes, get I, voters. I yes. that's, yeah, I think it's exactly true. Fear is a highly effective mechanism to basically draw people's attention because, again, for tens of thousands of years, uh, you know, our ancestors that didn't pay attention to threats were ancestors that were quickly taken out of the gene pool. And so we have brains that are very, very focused on things that can do us harm. Mm, interesting. Another episode in the series, Not at the Dinner Table. I, I love that title. You talk about, uh, I talked to a political scientist who says that the the real divide may not be between the left and the right, but perhaps by those who care intensely about politics and, and those who don't. 
That's right. I think when most of us think about the political divide, we believe that half the country believes one thing and half the country believes exactly the opposite, and everyone is passionate about their views and cares deeply about politics. But when you drill a little bit deeper into the data, and this is work by the political scientist Yana Krupnikov and some of her colleagues, she finds that only a small fraction of people, in fact, want to live, breathe, and talk politics all the time. You know, it might be 10 or 15% of Democrats, 10 or 15% of Republicans. These are the people who are often the most fervent partisans. They, they want to talk about politics. They have very strong views about politics. They're often very strident in the way they speak. And, and part of the problem is that these voices tend to dominate everything that we hear about politics. And, and you and I in the media here, Kim, might be part of the problem because in some ways we elevate the people who have the loudest and the angriest voices. These are the voices we most often hear on the radio, on cable television, on op-ed pages. And so our minds in some ways mistakenly form the belief that everyone shares these strident views. In fact, for most people, politics is a secondary thing, a secondary of secondary importance in their lives. They have far more important things to think about, or maybe even a tertiary thing. Uh, it's important. It's a part of their lives. They're interested in the issues. But in fact, it's not something they want to live, breathe, and talk about. And it's certainly not something they want to have dominate every other aspect of their lives. I guess they're not in the media then. <laughs> Another exactly. episode that you look back at political history in the United States to help us sort of navigate our current political landscape. You talk with NPR Steve Inskeep, about uh, Abraham Lincoln and his presidency. So Stephen Skeep has uh, just written a book about how Lincoln dealt with people who disagreed with him, and we decided to include that in the series as a, as a wonderful real-life example of a time when the country, in fact, was terribly divided, perhaps more deeply divided than, than any other time in, in its history. Um, and, and Lincoln was a remarkable uh, leader because one of the things he believed in was to keep the lines of communication open, even with people with whom he vehemently disagreed. And, and Lincoln, at some level, was a very strategic politician, and, and part of his doing this was uh, was both strategy and, and political. Uh, he, he basically said, if, if you and I disagree on 95% of the issues, but we agree on 5% of the issues, let's make common ground and let's try and make headway on those 5% of the issues. And he also said, if you and I disagree on 100% of the issues, let's keep the line of communications open because three years from now or 10 years from now, there might be something on which we can find common ground. And so in some ways, this ability to, to stay in conversation, to stay in a difficult conversation with people whom you disagree with is a skill that I think is increasingly lost uh, today in, in the United States. And, and you think about this in our personal lives as well. It's really important sometimes to stay in conversation when the conversation is difficult. You know, we all have a tendency, I think, to pick up our hats and leave the room when the conversation gets upsetting or heated because it's so upsetting to us. We're so triggered by the conversation that we say, you know, I just don't want to have anything to do with this person anymore. And I think Lincoln's example suggests that, in fact, if our goal is to make headway, if our goal is to be effective, then in some ways we actually have to work with the people who disagree with us. Oh, we could persuade them to see our point of view, which is a, you're, you're another episode, getting someone to see our side. And that, that's not an easy thing to do these days. It seems like we're, it, we're very much yeah. divided. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is not an easy thing to do. And I think it's not an easy thing to do in part because our strategy to change other people's minds 
I think is the wrong strategy. Many of us, I think, mistakenly believe that throwing facts at our opponents will disabuse them of their false views. You know, people have a naive belief. If I can just sit down for 10 minutes with somebody who believes what I don't believe, you know, I can show them these statistics or this set of facts or this argument, and they will come over and be persuaded and, and join my side. And that is simply not the case. I mean, when was the last time someone hectored you with a set of facts and you basically meekly rolled over and said, okay, now I, I, I reject everything I formerly believed and I, I believe what, what it is that you're telling me. In many ways, a far more effective strategy, even though that seems counterintuitive, is, is to prioritize talking less and prioritize listening a little bit more. And in some ways, this is a model that uh, the researchers I've spoken with have taken from the work of psychotherapists. You know, when you, when you go and speak with a psychotherapist about something upsetting that happened to you, you know, maybe your boss was uh, unpleasant to you at, at work today, and you talk to your psychotherapist about it, maybe the first 10 minutes, you know, all you can do is rant about your boss and, and, and describe how upset you are and how wrong the boss was and how right you are. But when the psychotherapist listens without arguing with you and asks you a couple of follow-up questions, you know, why do you feel what you feel? You know, what else happened? What do you think you could have done? Gradually, I think when, when you have someone giving you a patient ear, you start to calm down, and then you start to realize that your own views on the subject might be more nuanced than you might have initially offered. Uh, you start to ask yourself, you know, is it possible that I could have done something in this situation to have you know, decompress the situation a little bit, to have calmed things down a little bit. And in some ways, I think we often make the mistake of assuming that in an argument, as we are riling ourselves up and riling our opponents up, that the other side is able to hear us. And in fact, by offering our opponents the gift of our our listening, listening to what they have to say, asking follow-up questions, being attentive to what they say, by offering them this gift, paradoxically, we make them more open to hearing their own doubts and to hearing our points of view. Mm -hmm. And you talked to someone, a psychologist, about this conflict and how thought patterns can help us or hurt us. Yeah, in, in in many ways, I think that is the underlying theme across all of the the episodes in in this series, uh, which is that I think we're often unaware uh, to the extent to which our political beliefs are animated by some of these underlying forces. Uh, you know, the, our beliefs are tied up in our in our identities and in our group affiliations, and those things matter deeply to us as human beings, and they matter so deeply that we are often unwilling to march against people who are on our side or to violate the rules of the tribe. And in some ways, looking at the the conversation one level below where it's actually happening on cable television might give us some insight into how to diffuse these situations. Fascinating series. We're all looking forward to it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Kim. It's been a pleasure. That was KCBX's Kim Foster speaking with Shankar Vedantam, the host of Hidden Brain. You can hear Hidden Brain on KCBX each Friday from 2 to 3. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, KCBX's Stu Soren and guest Patrick Handley will take a look at the federal judicial system. Our show is taking a departure today. We have a fascinating guest that will allow us to explore the federal judicial system and a few very highly charged legal cases across our country. Patrick Hanley is with us today. Pat is a former federal prosecutor and current criminal defense attorney. Pat has been a lawyer for 36 years, 
He spent three years practicing civil litigation, 15 years as a federal prosecutor in Sacramento, and the last 18 years as a criminal defense attorney specializing in white-collar criminal defense. He has tried over 90 cases in both state and federal court and handled hundreds more both in court and on appeal. Pat, welcome. Glad to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Stu. Great. Hey, Pat, so today we want to talk about your time as a federal prosecutor. Can you just take a few minutes and tell us how the system works, how it's set up generally? Sure. So there are 93 uh, U.S. attorney's offices across the country. Uh, each office has a U.S. attorney who is the boss, who's appointed by the president. And then each office will have uh, several prosecutors who do criminal work and several prosecutors who do civil work. In Sacramento, for example, I think we had 40 what they call AUSAs, or assistant U.S. attorneys, who are doing uh, federal criminal prosecutions. And a federal criminal prosecution is started with a grand jury investigation, which is 23 people who hear the evidence and vote on the indictment, have to have a quorum of at least 16 to vote. And so that would start a, a grand jury investigation where they would call in witnesses, subpoena documents, hear testimony. And at the end of the investigation, which typically a grand jury investigation in a white collar case would typically take 18 to 36 months to complete. Uh, and then there'd be an indictment presented to the grand jury. They would vote either a true bill or a no true bill. And if a true bill is, is voted yes, then the person would be indicted and the court case would begin. So, Pat, typically what kind of crimes are we talking about that federal prosecutors are working with? Well, in the state system, you have the district attorney's office. Every county has a district attorney. And so San Luis Obispo County has its own district attorney, a very good one in Dan Dow. And so the district attorney's offices generally will deal with reactive street crime. So a street crime is committed, there's a, a victim, there's a complaint, the cops either arrive on the scene and arrest somebody, or they do an investigation and then arrest somebody. Uh, and we're talking violent crime, street crime, and some white collar crime. Uh, a federal case typically is more involved, it's not reactive, there'll be a complaint or something where the Bureau or the IRS or DEA or ATF will pick up the investigation, run with it for several months, and then they'll indict a fraud case, wire fraud or mail fraud, or cases that involve conduct that crosses county or state lines, because the county DA can only work in their county, they can't work outside their county. So federal cases typically are more involved, uh, involve more investigation, and the crimes are typically uh, large-scale narcotics, immigration, uh, child pornography is a big caseload for the U.S. Attorney's offices, and then white-collar crime, which is wire, mail fraud, uh, or tax crimes. They're generally bigger crimes that require more investigative manpower that a lot of the local agencies just simply don't have. Okay. Pat, we have a very politically charged atmosphere in our country today. And we want to keep this interview, our discussion, as apolitical as possible. Did you ever do any political investigations as an AUSA? Well, I wouldn't call them political investigations. I did investigate many cases involving politicians. Okay. Uh, and I had uh, one particular investigation that involved uh, offices of the governor. Uh, and so that involved the governor's office and some of the satellite offices that fall under his purview back uh, many years ago. So I've done investigations that involve politicians and their political offices. And 
Are there guidelines that the office establishes for you as you do these investigations? Yes. The, um, the Department of Justice has what they call the, the Principles of Federal Prosecution, which is a large, several-volume book uh, that has principles about everything you could think of in a federal prosecution, one of which is how to deal with uh, investigations or cases uh, that could possibly impact on an election. Okay, and what would those guidelines say? So in those instances, it says in the guidelines that you're not to, one, you cannot instigate an investigation or a case for political reasons. For example, if you're uh, an FBI agent who uh, doesn't like the particular office holder, you can't investigate them and try and charge them criminally because you don't like their politics. Another aspect of it is you can't do anything uh, as an FBI agent or an assistant U.S. attorney in prosecuting or investigating a criminal case that could potentially impact an upcoming election. The system is set up to work. And you and I have had some discussions, and you've expressed some concerns about the fact that while the system works well, people have opinions, and you just basically voice that. And you've expressed some concerns about the fact that sometimes, whether the opinions are in terms of an investigator or the prosecutor, that sometimes those may get in the way. Yes. Um, the system is good. The system, however, is run by people, and people are not always good. Uh, while the system is neutral, people obviously have their own political views, be they an agent or a judge or a prosecutor. And so the problem we have in the system is when the, uh, the people who operate the system, they uh, use their political values in their, in their work. And you can't, you can do that in another job, but as a prosecutor or a federal agent, you simply cannot do that. Uh, because that, that, you know, that's bad for the system. And the outcome might be what you want, but it'd be bad for the system overall. Okay. So let's talk about some of the cases that are working through the, the system today. Um, in Florida, the federal government has charged our ex-president with a documents case. Can you talk about that for a bit? Sure. So in the Florida case, uh, you have a former president who is in possession of highly classified documents. Uh, and so that's not unusual. We've seen that with other uh, former presidents or, or maybe former office holders uh, have had in their possession um, highly classified documents that they weren't supposed to have. Uh, that's not unusual. Uh, in the Florida case, what's a little bit unusual is that uh, when you look at the process that was undertaken there, it's outside the norm of what the department would normally do. Uh, for example, serving a, um, let me back up a little bit and just say that I, I, looking at the facts myself, I think it's a clear-cut case that the former president obstructed the investigation. I think that seems pretty clear to everyone. And so the obstruction of justice, that's a crime. Uh, but the question of his possessing the highly sensitive documents, that's a little more open. And so here, if you look at the department's conduct and the way it reacted to his possession of the classified documents, that's a little bit unusual. Normally, you wouldn't see the department um, issue a search warrant on a former president's house where you had lights and sirens and guns and agents, a very showy, uh, people probably saw it on the news. That's a, little, that's a little bit unusual. That's outside the box. And so that's one situation where you might say that in a different time with a different former president, they might have just handled that behind the scenes. You're suspecting then that somebody's, somebody's personal opinions were involved in that. Certainly possible, Stu. I mean, I look at that, and um, and Mr. Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland, has said that there is one system of justice for all people, 
There's not two systems of justice. Uh, at the same time, people in the law enforcement community, uh, such as myself, who've done those search warrants and have participated in those type of investigations, I can tell you that I would never have gotten permission to execute a search warrant on a former president's house. Just simply would not have happened because uh, the department would have looked at that and said, there's too much downside to that. Uh, it's bad for the system to have uh, the Department of Justice investigating and searching the house of a former president, even though it might be warranted. They would have found a different way to do that, something that was a little bit quieter and behind the scenes so that it wouldn't have been so flashy, because it, at least half the country could be very upset about that and think that it is politically motivated. And the department is always trying to avoid the appearance that their conduct is politically motivated. Now, there are Obviously, there are situations where their hands are tied and they have to do what they have to do, whether it appears politically motivated or not. And this could be one of those situations. Okay. Pat, do you expect that this case will go to trial? Uh, I do suspect that all of the Trump cases will go to trial because I've had lots of clients uh, in my career. Thankfully, I've never had the former president as one. Uh, I can't imagine a more difficult client. He doesn't strike me as the settling kind of guy. So I'm guessing that every one of those cases will go to trial in, in the event that it's found that he does not enjoy presidential immunity for his conduct. Okay. If you're just joining us, this is KCBX Public Radio. Our guest today is Pat Hanley. Pat is a former federal prosecutor and current criminal defense attorney. I'm Stu Soren. So let's look at another case from a 30,000-foot perspective. Uh, again, the ex-president has been charged with sedition. Based on this charge, the Colorado Supreme Court voted 4-3 to three to bar the ex-president from their ballot for the upcoming election. Let's not talk about January 6th, but rather the ex-president's appeal to the Supreme Court under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so uh, the 14th Amendment was passed in, uh, I think, 1866, and I think it was ratified in 1868. And the intent behind the statute was, as the country uh, recovered from the Civil War, they did not want to have officers, uh, cabinet holders from the Confederation serving in their state in the federal legislature because they felt that they were guilty of sedition in starting and running the Civil War. So that was the kind of the intent behind Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And if you read the section, it's not all that long. It lists many offices that you cannot hold if you've been found guilty of sedition. There is no mention in there of the office of the President of the United States. So right off the bat, if you're examining whether or not the President of the United States can be held responsible uh, or kicked off the ballot uh, for sedition because of Section 3, you'll notice that his, that office is not in there. Uh, and then you go back and look at the history of that section. Earlier drafts, the Office of the President of the United States and Vice President of the United States, their titles and offices were in Section 3, and the drafters took it out. So standard statutory construction analysis as a lawyer, first-year lawyer, you would look at that and say, well, it was in there and they took it out and it's not in there now. So it would appear that the office of the President of the United States uh, is not governed by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And you expect the Supreme Court then to throw this out? Yeah, I would expect that this would be a, a quick 9-0 decision. Now, they don't have to issue an opinion on every case. They can just issue an order. And I would hope that they would just issue a one-page order ordering, you know, the Colorado Supreme Court to reverse itself 
because, and I would hope we get all nine justices on this, because it's better for the country. We don't want to have, you know, Bush v. Gore again uh, in 2000. It's better for the country if it appears as though everyone is behind the idea that you cannot kick someone off the ballot because you don't like their politics. Okay. And, and what, that's an argument. You know, there were three justices on the, on the Supreme Court in Colorado who disagreed uh, with the majority of four justices. So clearly, even in Colorado, there was some debate as to whether um, they, could, they could make this ruling. And, and that's why in something as important as this to the democracy of the country, we have to get everybody on board to agree. So, Pat, do you think that that ruling, and this is a little bit different direction, do you think that ruling will have any effect on the president's claims for total immunity? No, because that's different. Uh, presidential immunity is not found in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. In fact, there aren't statutes or laws that, in the Constitution or statutory law that says the president is immune for his conduct while in office. That's created by the judicial branch in just cases over the years, such as uh, uh, Fitzgerald v. Nixon, which held that the president was not liable for civil damages for his conduct in that particular case. And that, and that has kind of been the law throughout the country, that the president enjoys absolute immunity for his acts as president, at least as with respect to civil damages. There's an open question following the, the Fitzgerald v. Nixon case as to whether or not the president can be held uh, criminally liable for his conduct while in office. And that's the question that still needs to be answered. Yes. And so the question surrounding immunity for the former president uh, with respect to his conduct surrounds his conduct just before and at January 6th when he gave that speech on the Capitol Mall. On the one side, people are saying he was inciting violence and insurrection. And on the other side, people are saying he was just giving a speech, which is something that a president normally does. So the question for the Supreme Court would be, was his conduct on that day within the scope of his employment, if you will, as the president of the United States? Is that part of uh, the things that he is required to do or would normally do? If he were a candidate running for office, clearly not covered. And that's the argument is that he was giving a speech. Uh, basically, uh, he was stumping for himself for the, for the next election, which is coming up here in November. Uh, clearly, that's not covered. But if he's, if he's doing things that are within the, the functions of the office of the President of the United States, which is broadly interpreted by the Supreme Court, then he is absolutely immune. Thank you. So let's move a little closer to home. Um, there's a case that's very emotional for this community. Kristen Smart, a, a Cal Poly student, was murdered in 1996. In 2023, her killer was prosecuted and convicted. A few weeks ago, her family filed a lawsuit suing the school for negligence and wrongful death. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but based on your experience, what are your thoughts about this case? Well, uh, tragedy. The case is tragedy. And I give the district attorney's office, Dan Dow, and his people a lot of credit. Uh, that was a very difficult case. I give them a lot of credit for the case and the conviction. Um, I think what's going on in the lawsuit there, uh, so wrongful death, there's a one-year statute of limitations. For negligence and negligent misrepresentation, there's a two-year statute of limitations. So unless the conduct they're complaining of occurred within one or two years 
uh, they would be barred by the statute of limitations. There could be an argument, I think, that, um, and I'm going back to my civil lawyer days, that the statement by the president of the university here, Cal Poly, uh, something to the effect of they could have, Cal Poly could have done a better job. I guess it could be argued that that, that started the statute running again, at least as to the negligent uh, infliction of emotional distress charge. I think what's kind of going on a little bit behind the scenes as I read the, the articles in the paper is that the Smart family uh, is very much interested in Cal Poly's investigative file that they had on this particular case, which I don't think they've ever gotten before. So it could possibly be that there, there'll be a settlement. My guess is these cases usually settle. There'll be a settlement of some kind where they're given that file. That could be what they're after. I don't think it's a monetary situation where they're trying to get money from the lawsuit. I don't believe that at all. And it's just basically for their own personal information. Yes. Yes. Now, could that lead to something else? I guess that's possible. If there's some evidence in there that they don't have, there's nothing sinister here behind this. It's not a, It's not for money or anything like that, I don't believe. I think it's just because they want to see that file and they want to know what Cal Poly knew when they knew it and what they knew. Okay. Sometimes something like this just starts a dialogue between the parties, and then they're able to resolve it. I don't think the university wants a public case involving the Smart family at this time, and so it's probably in their best interest to try and negotiate something where they don't even maybe don't even file an answer. I don't know if they filed an answer yet, but they typically have 30 days from the filing of the complaint. But my guess is they, they get together, parties get together now and have a discussion about how they can resolve the case before it goes any further. Pat, I can't tell you much. We appreciate you coming in today. Thank you so much for joining us at KCBX. Stu, thanks for having me. Our guest has been Pat Hanley. Pat is a former federal prosecutor and current criminal defense attorney. I'm Stu Soren. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangerman. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. Up next, the nonprofit story. This is your host, Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I'm here today with Frank Kalman. He is the executive director and founder of In Kids Cancer, a nonprofit that helps deal with children's cancer particularly neuroblastoma, which he is going to tell us more about. Frank used to be with the American Honda Motor Corporation, but he left that to found this organization to help not only his daughter, but to help hundreds of others that are out there. So Frank Kelman, welcome to The Nonprofit Story. Oh, thank you for having me. Just give us a brief background of In Kids Cancer, how it came to be, and what your mission and purpose is. We got involved in this business not out of choice. I thought cancer was one of those things that was going to pass us by. But that all changed when our 12-year-old daughter, we have three girls, our oldest one was complaining about a lump on her side. And we took her into the doctor and a local doctor named Dr. Roland. The following day, they removed the cancer from my daughter's side. Mm. In the middle of the night, the doctors told us that she had cancer. And it was overwhelming. And the doctors told us that she had a 45% chance of growing up. My goodness. Then seven months later, uh, she relapsed. That's when the doctors told us that she wasn't going to make it. Hmm. My wife and I didn't accept that. We figured that there's got to be someone out there that that could save her. So I started reading the medical literature. I started taking her to the different centers throughout the country focused on this disease. I started attending medical conferences, and we found the guys that saved her. Mm, right um, since then, she has relapsed seven, six more times. 
And uh, each time, this team brought her back to no evidence of disease. Today, she's 35. Uh, her battle has been brutal. Hmm. In addition to the uh, surgeries, she's had oh, about 400 weeks of chemotherapy. She had a double mastectomy just a couple of years ago because of the radiation she received in the chest. Uh, she's doing fine, living in Templeton, and, and is happy. And uh, uh, even though her battle has been brutal, she is one of the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. She made friends with eight other kids that had the exact same disease. And while Hallie was relapsing, these these kids were dying. And when that last child died is when we decided to start the foundation. Mm -hmm. So about what year was that? Um, it was 2010. Okay. Tell us about this particular cancer, neuroblastoma. It is, uh, well, obviously we figured that if, if we stick with one cancer, what, what my daughter had, and we knew who the top guys were, because that's what we had to do is find the guys that would save her because every, uh, everyone else was saying it was the, the odds of her survival was terrible. Neuroblastoma is the most common cancer amongst infants, a solid tumor. Uh, when it, as I said earlier, when a child is initially diagnosed, 50-50 chance of survival. After relapse, back when we started, is uh, zero. But now it's gotten better. It's gotten to about 15-17 percent of but that's still horrible. Mm -hmm. It is a cancer of the nerves outside of the brain, oh. and it obviously is one of the most devastating. A majority of the diagnosis takes place prior to the age of five. My goodness. So you're looking now at how you can help fund finding a cure. Mm -hmm. for this cancer and also you're doing a lot to disseminate some information to others so they will know steps to take yes since we had to find who we consider the top guys in the field we have been supporting t-cell research uh, nk cell microbiome uh, liquid biopsy uh, monoclonal antibodies this is the very cutting edge mm. of cancer research and two of the projects that we have supported have, after we've established proof of concept, FDA and the NCI came in with multi-million dollar investments. Wonderful. And also we supported a, a vaccine trial uh, that uh, reduced relapse rates for a certain group of kids by 50%. Uh, the doctors that, who we've been supporting and who are on our medical advisory board have been involved in the development of all the treatments. More than likely, any child diagnosed with this disease here in the U.S. and also abroad will be treated by the protocols developed by the doctors on our medical advisory board. Now, how did that advisory board get developed? I had an interesting meeting once on the street of Santa Monica. I ran into uh, a fellow that was in this movie, The World's Fastest Indian, and he turned out to be the nephew of John F. Kennedy. And uh, he took an interest in my daughter, Callie, and he would periodically call to check on her. And when that last child died, I called him because I figured that he had a lot of experience with nonprofits, his family had had. And he gave me some great advice. And he goes, whatever you do, Frank, get the best medical doctors. And at first I was intimidated thinking, well, that's easy for you to say with a last name like yours. Mm. And, uh, but then I realized that's who I've been dealing with. Mm. Those are the guys that are keeping my child alive. Mm. So with him on board, it was easy to recruit these doctors. 
So it started from there. You found this one yeah. person and you began to just recruit doctors and talk about how are we going to make this cure come about. Right. So now with this particular cancer, are you taking people in to get tested? Are you helping people to find out where to get treatment? What do you actually provide to the community through your foundation? At the very early part of of traveling all over the country, we came to realize that there are many kids that were dying unnecessarily because they were never getting to the right centers. Right. Uh, Or the, the doctors who even the pediatric oncologists didn't know of the centers that were administering the most effective and, and modern treatments. And this is common in adult cancers and many diseases. Mm-hmm. When the front line fails when it comes to pediatric cancers and neuroblastoma specifically, there's only a handful of centers that know how to deal with treatments fail. Mm-hmm. So based on what I had learned in these years of fighting cancer, I wrote this cancer guidebook 29 pages, mm-hmm. and it addresses this particular issue. We show a, an objective way to identify the top centers focused on the child's disease for the sole purpose of confirming the diagnosis, because incorrect diagnosis for pediatrics is very high, as much as 50%, according to some wow. studies, and then confirm that the treatments that that child is getting at whatever center they're at is the most effective and latest. Mm-hmm. And then also the guide shows families how to overcome if they are challenged financially and and emotionally and that and in many cases that prevents families to getting to the top centers if they need to Mm -hmm. and so again it shows families how to get free flights free housing and and how to deal with insurance Mm -hmm. Um, and then we distributed the guide to the American Academy of Pediatrics president, Dr. Fernando Stein, he read it and he said it belongs in every pediatrician's office. With the help of local Congresswoman Lois Capps, we sent a copy to Vice President Joe Biden at the time. And he invited us to the White House to represent pediatric cancer research. That's fantastic. So you're able to get this out and disseminate this information. And apparently it's not easy for people to find exactly what they need if they need to get this treated. It has to be a horrible thing when your child is sick and you don't get information on where to go. (laughs) Dealing with a serious disease like cancer is like trying to cross a minefield. This guide is is a product of all the people, parents that I've met, adults fighting cancer, all the doctors fighting cancer. So it's just not me. It's just what I've gained from all these different people. And it shows folks how to try to maneuver across the minefield Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with cancer. Mm -hmm. One of the themes of the guide is uh, trust but verify. Yes. If we would have listened to our oncologists at the very beginning and given up, our daughter wouldn't be here with us today. Here's one thing that really, really bothers me, and Mm -hmm. and I've run into this all over the United States and the country. So I get calls from parents who say that uh, our child is at a certain center and uh, and they've exhausted everything for our child and that we should take our child home and let them die in dignity. Mm. I've said, hold, hold it, hold it. And I, let, me, let me have you talk to anyone on our medical advisory board. Last person I talked to, dad calls me back and said, uh, the center that you referred me to has uh, told us they have three options for my son. You are just joining us. This is the Nonprofit Story. I'm your host, Dr. Consuelo Muse. Speaking with me today is Frank Kalman. He is the founder and president CEO of End Kids 
cancer. And we are with KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. So, Frank, as you were saying, sometimes people aren't even given the information that Correct. they need. So now you have created this wonderful guide. It's called Steps to Hope. And we want to tell people where they can find it, first of all. You can find it on our website, nkidscancer.org. It's under the resource tab. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful guide. And one of the things that you say is just keep looking and just be involved with what's happening. Don't just take the first response. And I think you've just verified that with some of the ways that mm-hmm. people will talk to you. What are some of the other things? And you're saying to confirm, confirm diagnosis, make it your responsibility to find an expert, not just someone that doesn't understand this, but find your expert. One of the biggest difficulties is when, you, um, when you're dealing with a, look at the doctors who's caring for your child Mm -hmm. currently is to say to them is that I'd like you to save the tumor I want the actual tissue Wow! uh, because I want to send that to another center Mm -hmm. for confirmation and the most difficult thing for a parent and it was for us is when you're talking to a doctor who's at that time caring for your child and you're saying to him I want to confirm what you're saying Hmm. that is really difficult but it's it's got to be done because you're responsibility to your child is far greater than worrying about hurting someone's feelings absolutely and so what you want to do is confirm because I have run into so many families where one kid was misdiagnosed seven times and he had lost his leg in the process so you want to be sure of what you're doing take action right you have to be very proactive hope without action is meaningless Mm -hmm. because you have to act and, and the guide also tells you how to deal with the emotional aspects of it. And most importantly, you, you want a, a friend mm-hmm. who helps you mm-hmm. through this process. Mm-hmm. Because when you go to meetings with your oncologist and you're hearing bad news, you don't listen anymore. You're not listening. Mm-hmm. Your friend is. So if people get in touch with the NKIDS Cancer nonprofit and say they are just feeling lost or they've been given this uh, information that there's nothing we can do, is there a way they can get in touch with somebody that can help to give them a little guidance on the next step? Reading the guide is the first thing to okay. do. We're not really set up to provide personal guidance. I will talk to folks mm-hmm. answering questions. Mm-hmm. But the cancer guide is uh, the first step. And after reading the guide, and if you're puzzled, call us. Frank, and I just wonder how it affects a person. Here you are a father, and you have a child who is going through this, and you have other children. I wonder if you could just share a little bit, how do you get through this as a parent? Um, Believe it or not, Two things. I actually develop post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's very common, even for the kids and mm-hmm. the parents to develop it. And uh, actually, when you're doing research, when you're reading and reading and reading and going on to the NIH and NCI's website and to the different hospitals' website, you're in a neutral state. Mm-hmm. And when you're educating yourself or reading and searching, that alleviates the, the pain. Uh, uh, then I um, tr- uh, finally I ran into... Uh, um, a counselor that had was counseling Vietnam nurses who were coming back from Vietnam and she was the one after seeing several she was the only one that really I felt was able to help me and she pointed out if you're really bad off you got to get drugs and then she started saying you, you need to get out in nature mm-hmm. exercise is the best thing for you um, and, and in my case, I used to wander around in the middle of the night walking through all over San Luis Obispo. Hmm. But uh, there, it, it, 
whatever you do, get help. Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting help that you feel it's working, don't feel bad to go somewhere else. And I had to do that several times before I connected with the right person. Because ultimately, you want to take care of yourself because you want to be in good shape to take care of your child mm-hmm. or whoever you might be caring for. Um, and that is extremely important. If you're in bad shape, you're not going to be much help. I think sometimes we stand back. We mention that word cancer and we stand back and we maybe say we don't want to get in touch. Or I've had friends say, I, I don't know what to do yeah. when, when I'm around. I have found out that just being there, just hanging out, just talking, uh, simple things, and let the, the person that's dealing with this take the lead in the conversation. But just being there for someone makes a huge difference. So Frank, tell people where they can find you again and where they can get your guide that is so incredibly helpful and detailed in helping them know what steps to take. Uh, the guide is at our foundation, which is nkidscancer.org, and it's under the resource tab. There's one other thing that we're now developing. When it comes to kids, prevention has been ignored by our government. Uh, the government has on numerous occasions admitted that uh, they have let our children down hmm. by not protecting kids from toxic chemicals that are in our environment, in the products that we buy, and also in the uh, foods that we're eating. That is why we're hearing all of this, that uh, cancer is increasing, even though the treatments are becoming more effective. Mm-hmm. You can reduce your exposure to pesticides by 90% by eating USDA-certified organic-labeled food. My daughter was having a, 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 the, the surgery at Cedars-Sinai for a double mastectomy. I thought to myself, mm-hmm. could we have avoided this whole darn thing in the first place? And so I looked and searched for neuroblastoma lawsuits, and I came across a bunch. Mm-hmm. So it was the companies that were producing chloridane back in the 80s that they were using to fumigate homes. Mm-hmm. And we had bought our first home in Los Osos back then when my wife was pregnant with Callie, and she was exposed, we think, to chloridane. We'll never know for sure if that was it. This information that you have is so needful, and I do hope people will go to your website, inkidscancer.org. I've been talking with Frank Kalman. He is the president and CEO of In Kids Cancer. And Frank, thank you so much for being with us today on The Nonprofit Story. Thank you for having me. This is KCBX Public Radio. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. Up next, there's a Lunar New Year celebration coming up in San Luis Obispo on Palm Street. It's this Saturday, February 10th. KCBX's Kim Foster chats with one of the organizers, Amber Carson, about the history of San Luis Obispo's Chinatown and the Ah Lewis store building. I understand that the building, Ah Lewis, is 150 years old this year. Correct. We are celebrating 150 years, and the building was originally constructed in 1874, the wood structure, and then in 1885, Al Lewis outgrew the original wood structure and put the brick building that stands today. So 150 years of the Al Lewis store, we're celebrating this year of the dragon. I understand it was Wong On that founded the store and brought quite a few people from China to work on the railroads here in California, and that his eight children 
And his family all lived in the store. Yeah, so he was just an incredible entrepreneur and pioneer in every sense of the word. So he had eight children that he raised upstairs in the residence above the All Lewis store. Um, so downstairs was the general store, but it really served as a community gathering place for all different types of industry workers and a place for a post office and a bank, um, a place for individuals to get supplies. So it really was an all-purpose um, store, but at the heart was a, also a place of celebration and gathering and community. The San Luis Obispo Chinatown area was a lot larger than it is today, but the Ah Lewis store was sort of the the hub of activity. It has always been the heart of the historic Chinatown district. And so there was, you know, what once was a, a more booming Chinatown than there is today. Most of the Chinese left San Luis Obispo in around the 1930s, I'm told. Um, and so there are three remaining original structures that are a part of the historic Chinatown today are building the Ah Lewis store. Uh, Mi Hang Lo and then Chong's Candy Store, which is where Anderson Real Estate is um, just across the street from us. Ah. So what it's, what's it like working in a store that's 150 years old that has all this history? Um, it, it's, it means everything. So I didn't set out to be a retail shop owner. We really, um, my main business is event planning. Um, I came to San Luis Obispo. I'm a Cal Poly graduate and I came back 10 years ago. And this building has always kind of spoken to me in a way. And so I just was, I, I would tell people about my dream building. Um, and the lease became available and it was zoned retail. And so I think I called up my twin sister and business partner and said, let's do this. And so in six weeks time, we opened the Alua store, our iteration of it, um, which is an entertaining general store, a year round gift shop. And we really wanted to honor the history of that kind of original general store, which was a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And at the heart of it, a place for community and gathering. And it served as so much more than just a retail function back then. And that's really what Emily and I are trying to do now is really just bring that spirit and love back to the corner of Toro and Palm. And, you know, it was much more than just a retail shop and a general store. It was this place of community. And um, there's an obligation for us to honor that. Yeah. And he was a a large figure in bringing work and a lot of commerce to San Luis Obispo. There's so much of his touch across San Luis Obispo County, especially here in the city of San Luis Obispo, but the Cuesta Grade railroad tunnels, the Napomo flower farms, parts of, you know, the Avila Pier fishing industry, agriculture. There was a touch of all Lewis and his men in so much of our infrastructure and and history here of San Luis Obispo. And so um, we never want to lose sight of that. So when we we enter your store now, it, it feels like his spirit is in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, the building is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. All Lewis's great-grandson, uh, Dr. William Watson, owns the building. It'll stay in their family, and he helped renovate it back to the original glory. The floors are original. The shelves are original. The the poles and all the hardware, the original gasolier, which would have lit up the entire room, is still hanging. It's not functional now, um, but back in the day, that's how you would have you know, lit up that room. If the walls could talk, right? Yes, 
Yes, I feel like I should interview the walls when I ent- enter that building. So you want to honor him by, by having this Lunar New Year celebration. Can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this has been many years kind of in dreaming and making, and it just felt like the year of the dragon and the 150-year anniversary of the All Lewis store felt like the right year to go ahead and, and put this to life. And so um, we're having a Palm Street block party. We are going to have food and vendors and performance and a place for gathering and just community all day long. So starting at 11 o'clock a.m. and then going through until 6.30 p.m. We're going to have a grand finale drone light show in the sky when we hear about the history of how the Lewis family loved to celebrate Lunar New Year and Chinese New Year. Um, Fireworks are always a key component and having that nod to having something in the sky and having, you know, a sustainable alternative to fireworks here in San Luis Obispo was really important to me. And um, thank you to the city of San Luis Obispo for um, helping bring that to life. And we're really excited about um, that finale, if you will. How can people find out more about it? We have an event website and it's slochinatownhistoricdistrict.com. You can also find that at the links in our bio on Instagram. If you come to the All Lewis store page, you can link directly out to that. Um, but we have an event website that has the schedule of events. We have the Central Coast Chinese Association, the Cal Poly Chinese Student Association, and so many more organizations that are coming out to help put this to life. And then also on that website, there is a community and events page that helps Um, highlight other events that are happening. There's a lot going on here in San Luis Obispo. And so we want to make sure that we're encouraging people to celebrate Lunar New Year um, outside of the block party as well. So any plans to expand the Chinatown Historic District? Well, we definitely, you know, have seen sort of this revitalization of the slow Chinatown Historic District with the addition of Hotel Slow with, I would like to think, us coming back and bringing some love back to the corner of Choro and Palm. We have the Palm Theater, Mi Hang Lo. I think all of us that are there on Palm Street, I think the community I hope can tell the difference. There's there's a new energy that's brewing on Palm Street and it is the place to be. And so I know we get a lot of publicity about downtown kind of dying or, you know, becoming empty. And um, it's not what we're feeling on Palm Street. We are definitely feeling this kind of new energy and wave. And so um, I'm all for expanding that. So I'm a big dreamer. So I do see a future for Palm Street and bringing some of that back to life. I love how uh, the holidays you have it decorated just beautifully. Emily and I have really tried to make sure that we invest um, everything that we're given back to really making that special. And I think the holidays are just one of those times where if you drive by, you can't miss us. We light up the building. We have sort of fun decor. We try to challenge ourselves every year to make it bigger and better. Um, We purchased the crushed grape. Um, Gretchen, who was a longtime amazing female business owner in this town, um, was rewiring. She doesn't like the word retiring, but we were able to purchase the crushed grape and bring the wine baskets and gift baskets into the store right before the holidays. How is it having a 150-year-old building, though? Are there problems that need to be fixed? There's definitely quirks, right, of any <laughs> old building. And I, I think it's part of the charm. So, you know, um, we really 
built the store around the building. So the shelves that were existing that'll stay forever, um, we've filled those. And if you've been following us for a while, we did that very slowly and intentionally in what we could, quite frankly, afford to do. And so everything's intentional. So there's um, we've built the store around the physicality of the building versus us being a retailer that just wanted to come in. Like we have built this because of the, the actual building in the store and mm-hmm. wanting to serve the community. And so it's been fun to be able to think about, well, what fits on the shelf? How do we display the ornaments for the holidays, for instance, on those existing shelves? And how can we be creative on what we're trying to do, but working with that existing older infrastructure, um, you can't just bring like a new piece of furniture into that building, for instance, it doesn't look right. So we're, you know, working with the junk girls down the street to find some cool piece. We just have um, a new desk and checkout that was a, a table that was part of the Sinsheimer building. So we love that historic flair. And I think when we're merchandising or figuring out what we're bringing in, it, it definitely has to make sense. And it's a small space, but you walk in there and you feel the the history of the place. You know, it feels like home. That was exactly what all Lewis created for his community here was that sense of place and home. And after a long, grueling day out laboring, those individuals could come to the All Lewis store and have a place for socialization, for picking up supplies or visiting the apothecary or all the other things that we're told that that building served. But at the heart of it was a place for community. And um, I think that's important. And mm. I think that energy lives on. And this Lunar New Year Palm Street block party will uh, continue that tradition. We definitely want to amplify that spirit. And um, it's been so well received by the community, and it, which is just a testament of how overdue this is and how how much we needed this in our community. And um, I'm just really proud and happy to a part of bringing this to life. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was KCBX's Kim Foster and Amber Carson, one of the organizers of the Lunar New Year celebration, coming up this Saturday, February 10th in San Luis Obispo. You can learn more about the event at (music) slowchinatownhistoricdistrict.com. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Mm-hmm.